Today's conversation grew out of a series of articles I wrote recently exploring Priya Parker's brilliant book, The Art of Gathering. It's a masterful guide on making any type of gathering more human-centered, more meaningful, and more rewarding for all involved by redefining purpose and by rethinking traditions through the lens of that purpose. Well, my guest today has been doing just that at the Perth Symphony Orchestra. So today you're gonna to hear from Borby Webster, who over the past 10 years has been completely redefining what an orchestra can be and showing Western Australians that orchestral music can be relevant to their lives. Welcome to Pivot the podcast that's dedicated to reversing audience decline through customer-centric innovation. I'm Ruth Hart. So Borby, welcome. I'm so excited about this conversation. Thank you for chatting with me today, despite the fact that I think it's actually 10 p.m. where you are right now. It certainly is. Hello. Look, I'm very happy to be here. All good. Wonderful. It's so great to be chatting again. So before we dive in, Borby, let me just share a little bit about you with our viewers in case they're not familiar with you already. So Borby is a violist who holds two degrees from Oxford University. She is also a graduate of the Royal College of Music. And after her extensive musical training, she went on and earned an MBA from the University of Western Australia. A founding member of Bond, the UK-based electric string quartet, which has sold over 4 million albums worldwide, Borby founded the Perth Symphony Orchestra in 2011. And she has been called groundbreaking for creating a totally new kind of orchestra, which has become over the last decade, one of the largest arts organizations in Western Australia, consistently performing to capacity audiences throughout the region and regularly employing over 220 musicians. In 2019, she was named Western Australian of the Year for Arts and Culture in recognition of her efforts to bring extraordinary musical experiences to her community. She's also a winner of a 40 Under 40 Award for Entrepreneurs. And in 2022, she was named in Business News as one of the most influential people in Western Australia. So I barely scratched the surface there. <laughs> But that's a start. And that is a really impressive start for me. And can you just briefly tell us your story? What led you from studying at the Royal College of Music in London to ending up in Australia and deciding to start an orchestra? Absolutely. I look, the, the, the key thing was doing my postgrad at Royal College of Music. Um, and, you know, like all of us in the classical music industry, I don't think you know, we all go home and only put on Mozart every night. You know, we, we've got some Fleetwood Mac, we've got some Drake, you know, we, we all love all music. And I, at music college, there was a poster on the wall, wanted two violins, viola, cello, must be female, call Rob. And I was used to putting things together and making stuff happen. And I rang Rob and the next thing I know, I've got a record deal in a girl band in the 90s when, you know, the Spice Girls and other acts like that were doing extremely well globally. Um, so that was a complete shock to the system. But what was fascinating was that instead of audiences that we were playing to, instead of, you know, being, oh, bravo, you know, lovely, well done, to be like, yes! <laughs> and I was like, but our music is huge. And, you know, in the pinnacle of a Mahler symphony, people want to do that. So what have we done in terms of closing things down and restricting emotions in terms of responses and you know what can we do about that so it took a long time to work out how I could bring that into 
the world of a classical symphony orchestra. But um, yeah, Perth Symphony was part of that mission to do that. So that's awesome. So this was the year 2011. And I don't know about Australia, but in the States at that time, orchestras were in the middle of a, a fairly rapid decline in audiences, which we're still dealing with today. Uh, and consumers really just, they weren't seeing classical music as relevant for their lives. Um, and even in 2017 here, less than 10% were attending classical music concerts. So was it the same in Perth? Were you facing similar obstacles? What, you know, how open was that community to the arts and classical music? Look, you know, Australia is a, a very different place. And having come from London, I was like, oh, goodness me. Right. I mean, there wasn't even an orchestra for me to join unless I wanted to audition for Wazo, the WA Symphony Orchestra, which is the big state symphony with a grey haired audience playing in the same venue every week to the same subscribers every week. Um, and so, you know, my frustration at going, but, you know, in London, I had a brilliant freelance career where I could be in costume playing Vivaldi by candlelight in the vaults of the Academy of St. Martin in the fields one night or dressing up in Star Wars costumes to play with the Royal Philharmonic Touring Orchestra, you know, concert orchestra, or, you know, all of that variety was there come to Perth and it was almost 30 years previously. Mm. And, you know, the WA Symphony is a wonderful orchestra, but kind of back then it was just, this is what we do. I call it the museum piece. We preserve the music of the last 150 years in the way that it was played in the last 150 years and that's what we'll do with it so um you know it was very much a case for me of going we've got two really big urgent problems in 2011 that you know was the catalyst one was that well I mean, it was even when I got off the plane so I emigrated here in 20, um, 2000 so I've been here 22 years um and every musician that I met that was of a decent caliber that I wanted to play with was leaving because, you know, in a state symphony orchestra, you might get one or two jobs a year. I mean, God forbid you're a flautist because you might wait 30 years, you know. <laughs> so it was, wow, literally every single bit of talent, there's this exodus to the four corners of the globe and there are some magnificent Aussies in the US, you know, you lucky things. Um, so that was a huge part. I was like, there's going to be no one for me to play with outside of that, you know, orchestra. And I did, I auditioned for Wazo and played casual with them. Um, but then, everyone my age and back then I was in my mid-20s I was I was like, I've got tickets on Friday do you want to come or I've got I'm going to Wasso on Friday do you want to come and everyone was like oh my god no like no way like sorry and I was like the tickets are free and they're like no nah, it's just not my thing and I was like if I hear one more person say an orchestra is not their thing like I was like I would you know pose the question um but surely you listen to Star Wars and you've you know, you're watching that movie. Surely you watch Lord of the Rings. Are you telling me that when you hear the music, you turn it down and sort of put some Britney Spears on in the background? Is like, oh, no, 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 we love that. And I'm like, so what is the problem here? You, you actually love the sound of a symphony orchestra, but you won't remotely come and see a symphony. So, yeah, there was a desperate need in 2011 here to do something about that. I love that. That That's such a good argument for for the relevance of classical music, the fact that it is familiar to them in movies and it does add such an important element to that, to the movie experience. Um, did, how do they respond to that question and, and how, did, did you convince them in any way? <laughs> well, this was what was interesting that I would really then drill down because their response was always, oh yeah, no, no, I love that. And I'm like, so the orchestra is your thing. You just told me the orchestra wasn't your thing. 
the symphony's mm. not my thing was the phrase over and over and I'm like but you've just totally contradicted yourself you're like oh I love that and I'm like but you won't come to the concert hall and so if I drilled down it was the formality the rules you know it I sort of told this story that you know a friend of mine was like but you rock up and you've had to get there after work and you haven't had dinner you're still in your work suit and your heels and your feet are cold and you're queuing up for ages in the car park to even get a park and then you're queuing up in the foyer to file through the doors um you know by the time you've got a seat you spend the first movement kind of in fluoro lighting you know you generally bright concert brighter concert hall lighting um the conductor's got its back to you and generally doesn't say a word you know the conductor bows but you've no idea if they've got an italian accent or a spanish accent or whatever you know the orchestra is staring at their music stands they're not even looking at you no one's you know communicating directly with you you might grab a cold red wine in the interval which you've had to queue for as well so <laughs> the second half of the concert you're slightly drunk you're still hungry you know like this this was kind of the stories that they were telling me so i said right i'm going to play classical music but i'm not going to do classical concerts and so that it. set us on a path to go so what does that actually mean so yeah. that that was kind of the genesis that's amazing so um one of the first articles i wrote when i was exploring priya parker's book was this article on rethinking purpose um and it sounds like you have rethought the purpose for an orchestra i think for a lot of orchestras out there not all of them but for a lot of them the purpose for them is to perform high quality classical music um, and for you, it sounds like you've sort of turned that on its head. And, and, and well, how would you define, you know, your mission or your purpose at, at the PSO? Well, look, first of all, there are a lot of people that absolutely love sitting in that a concert hall with a cold red wine in the interval. So don't, don't get, and I'm one of them. So um, don't get me wrong, you know, that playing music for music's sake is an incredible thing and people are still touched by that. But I feel it's the minority that the broader po population isn't touched by that and can't get in through that and can't use that as a starting point. So um, my partner, Guy Sun, he's from the other end of the music industry. He's a record producer. Um, he was just, he coined the phrase, we just need music for everyone. We need the music to be for everyone. So our mission became music for everyone. And that really set, set us on a path thinking, you know, this is a mining state. Um, we have a lot of oil, gas and um, minerals dug out of the ground. That's what Western Australia is known for. Um, and I was like, I don't care if you wear steel cap boots and drive around in a ute truck, pickup truck, you know, like, I don't care if you wear pearls and drive around in a Mercedes. I don't care if you're into electronic dance music and, you know, um, kind of wear all black clothing. I, I, you know, our music is for everyone. So how can we package this up in a way that you will find it relevant and a soundtrack to your life? I also felt that People definitely saw the symphony as um, a special occasion thing that you would buy a ticket to as a special occasion thing. And I was like, but a symphony is actually a soundtrack to our lives. You know, the fact that we connect with music theatre and music theatre is still massive globally. Um, you know, you only have to look at Hamilton and, you know, some of the big shows that have come out. The difference between music theatre and normal theatre is the music it's it's the soundtrack it's what connects us to the story in such a massive way mm. so i was like you know we we've really got this great opportunity for a symphony to be the soundtrack to our lives right now and if we make it meaningful and necessary then then we have longevity then we have a purpose to keep going so that that purpose of music for everyone and what does that actually mean and how can we actually live and breathe that has been what's led us into a whole myriad of different things over the last few years. 
That's amazing. And I see someone had commented, um, can you restate the name of the book? The book is The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. Highly recommend it. Um, it's not coming from the lens of the art sector, but it's very, very applicable to, to the art sector. Um, yeah, and in that, in that book, Priya says, when you really redefine your purpose, when you make it very specific, um, it's it's so much easier to make decisions about everything, about marketing, about um, you know, the format of, of your gathering. And it sounds like for you, you had such a clear vision for what you wanted to do to, to bring this orchestral music to everyone that it, it just kind of ex created an explosion of, of ideas. Um, so can you talk about like, what are some of these sort of non-traditional, uh, venues and non-traditional concerts and innovative ideas that sort of came out of that purpose? Yeah. Um, it was about trying to find a way in because, you know, like as, as, if you're a classical symphony fan, you know that a concert is the most amazing experience and a concert hall is the best place to experience it. But the barriers to entry for the, so many people that I were talking to were massive. So the first thing I did was ask people, well, what concert do you like going to? Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, at the time, the Rolling Stones were touring. So we kind of brainstormed, kind of going, okay, so what do the Rolling Stones do that we're, we're not doing at the moment? They play songs, which are shorter pieces. So every song is about five minutes, not one hour. Um, they have people facing the audience and someone going, good evening, how are you going? And I wrote this one on a highway to yeah. on tour between you know New York and Chicago or whatever. So someone's communicating with you. Um, they're playing things people know. There's no way the Rolling Stones ever come out and go, we know that you like our hits, but actually we're about to play you our completely new album so making sure that um you know there was that um even before you've even started the concert you know generally particularly in arenas or open air venues you've got multiple entrances that aren't narrow so people that you know the queues just weren't there there's much more flow and actually if you want to come in after the concert starts you can and that often happens in contemporary music there isn't you know the actual starting point so literally i mean that's not to say that we do everything all of the time but all of those elements we considered what would that mean if we did that in the context of a classical concert mm -hmm. um and you know we've very much taken that to heart so in our classical presentations um we've put them in venues that are highly accessible and different and interesting we've played warehouses car parks basements an aircraft hangar we've played on cliffs like we obviously um, safety of musicians is paramount and trying to find acoustic venues is also a challenge mm -hmm. um, because Amplified is not the same as we all know um, but literally challenging every element making sure food and wine making sure they're social because you know a lot of people kind of said um, in the conversations that I had was that but we catch up with a girlfriend to go to the symphony but there's not a lot of time to talk because you're normally mm -hmm. rushing to get there you then sit quietly to listen. In the interval, you're just sort of in the queue for the bar and then you go back again. So you've not really caught up. So we've actually changed it. We only have an hour of music. We have three 20 minute sets, which people seem to find really digestible. And we program to that accordingly. We will always have a host or everyone always introduces themselves, every conductor, every soloist. So we're just bringing those elements of what people love about going to, um, other performances that have been traditionally not included in a classical concert. What about uh, concert etiquette? 
and sort of the, the, those traditional rules around audience behavior. Do you turn any of those on its head at all? I know that, that there was something to do with cell phones that we had talked about earlier. Yeah, look, um, it's basically, you know, if people are actually really great. They don't mind rules, actually, if they know, if someone says to you, to enjoy this immersive experience, please do ABC. But actually explaining why that's necessary as opposed to just people going, uh, 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 what am I supposed to do now? So, um, you know, look, in some of our sort of more out there concerts, we have a voiceover um, that we play at the start of the concert, often in the voice of the soloist or the conductor or whoever's featuring in the performance going, hi, you're about to hear us. So I'm just going to let you know, like, how this all works so that you can have fun, but so can we. And then they'll just sort of talk through that. And we've generally... Um, we have, because we were still struggling to get bigger numbers for our classical music, people were still not coming when they saw the word Beethoven. And mm. part of that is they're like, we don't know what Beethoven 5 means. You know, we don't yeah. know what K5, KV456 means. You know, we don't know what D minor means. So even, you know, we had to kind of strip everything off the poster and go a great evening of stunning music by candlelight or something. Mm -hmm. But what we then actually had to do was um, I started pushing into the contemporary space and actually the, the first one we tackled was Nirvana. And the reason we tackled Nirvana, I was like, if a symphony orchestra, we took the, there was no guitars, there was no, it wasn't just sticking an orchestra behind a band, which I know a lot mm -hmm. of people do, but I was like, no, no, I want to show the colors of a symphony orchestra and get an orchestra as the band. So mm -hmm. we wrote Nirvana, we called it Nirvana Reimagined. It was really extraordinary. We filled an opera house as the chosen venue with a bunch of ripped jeans and t-shirt wearing um, Nirvana fans who showed up and we opened, we were still wanting to captivate the audience in a more, um, a traditional concert way rather than having them screaming and yelling and dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the guy who was singing um, all the Nevada songs, you know, the Kurt Cobain basically did this fabulous US accent as a voiceover and said, and so now y'all, you gotta make sure you do this and this is our show. And blah, blah, blah. So he did this great voiceover, but literally saying, please all get out your phones, get ready to film, but whatever you do, don't piss the person off by filming the whole thing behind nice. you. So, you know, the voiceovers were like, we want you to enjoy it. We want you to share. We want you to tell people if you're experiencing something you love, take photos, um, film. Do, and obviously we had to get the orchestra to agree, which they did. But by having that dialogue, you could hear the audience kind of chuckling and murmuring and going, oh, okay, now we understand what the rules of engagement are going to be tonight. Yeah. But we've also got to listen. So it was great. And, you know, we got a standing awesome. ovation and a lot of fans crying. And, you know, we've sold out that concert several times since. That's and the amazing. orchestrations are beautiful, like beautiful grunge rock. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine for, for the Nirvana fan, it's a whole different way of hearing those songs um, that, that they've never experienced before. So that's, that was probably a draw for them. But I also love, I mean, you know, the other thing that I was writing about was that Priya Parker talks about pop-up rules. When you're bringing in outsiders who aren't comfortable in your world, if you create these new rules that everyone can follow, it makes everyone more comfortable uh, and more equal. And that's that idea of, you, yeah, get out your cell phone. You can, you can film, but you know, be reasonable, right? <laughs> so that's great. Um, now I see Amanda Lester has a question and I actually was going to ask the same question. So some critics might see all of this innovation that you're pulling in, um, all the ways that you're moving away from tradition. And they might say, you're dumbing down the art of classical music, right? You're being disrespectful to the composers, to the musicians. Um, you know, 
what is your response to that? And, and are you completely now eliminating tra traditional classical music or, you know, how would you respond to those critics? Oh, look, my personal ambition is that we're always funneling people towards classical and we do. And that's the most, you know, like I, I take it as a compliment that there is some confusion in the state when people say, oh my God, ever since I came to hear you guys play, I now go to the concert hall every week. And I'm like, well, we don't play the concert hall. So that's great. You're now really into the major classical repertoire. Look, of course, we've had tons of pushback, but it's only been from the fans that go to the WA Symphony. So, you know, the overwhelming response of a huge number of people from, you know, age six to 60, which was the demographic I was going for, has just been, my God, this is, you've just transformed it. Like, we are so addicted. We come to everything. It doesn't matter what you do. It's the sound of an orchestra that is so magnificent. And, you know, if, again, what we've done is kind of want to preserve, and that's what I call the kind of museum symphony, that absolutely the music is incredible and worthy and still relevant today. But in the day that that music was written, a lot of it was trying to be cutting edge. You know, what, what are the latest chords that we can throw in? What are the latest structures mm -hmm. that we can use? And can we break with the norm? You know, all of those composers wanted to be on the front edge, attracting new people, playing music that made them popular and renowned. So, you know, we're not actually doing anything different from that. You know, we do try and hold true to the, um, what makes something classical music versus contemporary music. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that, and I constantly say to people, I'm not an entertainment company. We might have just done a, a music a performance of the music of Prince, for example, but the amount of research that goes into that, like what was Prince's beliefs? What was that song actually about? Like if he'd had an orchestra, what colors and timbres like, mm -hmm. you know, particularly in Nirvana when Kurt Cobain was trying to lead a movement and it's like, well, we clearly need lots of corps anglais and, you know, um, different instruments to really reinforce the sound of the message. Mm. Um, and people really connect with that and suddenly go, I've never heard that song or felt that song. And I'm like, yeah, that's because that's what classical music really does. It enables us to have this palette of extraordinary colors and emotions way beyond what a four piece band, you know, they can get several emotions, but they're normally quite right. just this is a happy song, this is a sad song. Whereas we can get pathos, we can get reflection. And as soon as you bring that into that music, suddenly everyone gets why are it's so potent, how we really have an orchestra that reflects the human human condition, so. Yeah, so I mean, really to those critics, you're saying, this is not for you, right? You're yeah. saying this is for- We don't mind, the we don't mind them at all. There are so no. many orchestras still. Yeah. That do you know we have we have, we have lots of orchestras here in Perth like we have a baroque orchestra in a and they're doing those and you can go to a church and hear your Vivaldi played absolutely beautifully, um, but generally they're run by someone who it's not their full time job, and you know there's it's not the fine art they can't turn it into something that's sustaining musicians' careers and mm. that kind of thing. So I've just been look of course we have to navigate this thing so carefully. But I'm an orchestra, you know, with no funding. And, um, you know, when we started out, no philanthropy. So I had to find a way to make it work. And to do that, we had to be connecting with people that were not the traditional audience. So I've learned to weather the storm. And in fact, mm -hmm. we, have, we have brought some people with us, which is great. But yeah, there's something for everyone. Yeah, and I always, I often come to this, all of these ideas through the lens of um, the jobs to be done framework, which talks about, how customers have particular needs and particular circumstances that they're trying to solve. And 
for the people that you're targeting, their need is not to hear, you know, high quality classical music in a formal setting. They have other needs, social needs and emotional needs that you're serving with the food and the wine and the time to chat and things like that, which I think is great. Um, and it sounds like you are mixing together some of this crossover music and the classical, and you're, you're not just fo focusing in on one genre, but you're doing multiple genres to try to open or expand people's horizons a little bit. And, but, but what I love is that you're, you're modeling for us exactly what Nina Simon writes about in her book, The Art of Relevance. Um, she talks about helping outsiders find their way in to an unfamiliar world by cloaking it, cloaking something unfamiliar like classical music with something familiar. So you're doing that with this sort of more social setting and with some of the more crossover style um, repertoire, which I think is is wonderful. Um, you know, we're actually, wow, we're getting close to the end of our time together already. Um, so let me pause here and just ask our viewers, are there any other questions that you wanna um, share with Borby before we begin to wrap up? And I know John Jacob asked, um, is an orchestrated arrangement of a song by Nirvana really regarded as classical music that's crossover? And I think, yeah, the answer is it is it is crossover. Um, it is crossover, but I think it really depends on how you approach it as well. You know, many composers like Bartok were doing arrangements of folk songs, you know, so if it's a folk song, not a classical, you know what I mean? Like, what is a classical melody? Um, you know, so John, a very, very good point. And, you know, I love this because the orchestra's provoked some really great conversations that have challenged me and I'm constantly questioning questioning my decision and you know um thought processes so I, I welcome really healthy debate because we are we're in new territory here but what I firmly believe is that um if you're creating music and performing music that um is more than pure entertainment that it's it's something that makes people go away and reflect and think and feel in a completely different way and have thought something new and brought a new perspective and seen an artist in a new light, then, um, you know, that to me is kind of the essence of classical music in a way that it's provoking something beautiful and trying to create an amazing sound world. And regardless of the melody you use to do that, whether it's a Mozart melody or a Nirvana melody, um, then it, can, it to me it can, it can get there. Mm. And let's see, Anne Sorensen asks, what are some initial steps that arts organizations can take that want to diversify their outreach and offerings? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I, I just jumped feet first, really, going into Nirvana. So, um, you know, having done, we did concerts like Steampunk Mozart, um, and that to me was a really great step where we're taking a concept, but making it kind of intriguing and appealing. We did a Beethoven beer and bratwurst concert where we played Beethoven in a shed and, you know, everyone arrived and they got given a token, which was the Bavarian flag, because it had to be B. Um, and um, the venue was actually called B Shed in the Fremantle docks. Um, and everybody just sort of sat there wiping mustard and um, tomato sauce off their faces while listening to, to Beethoven 7. And it was just absolutely fabulous. Wow. So it's kind of putting the classical music into the, contemporary experience mm. that alone you know and depending on your demographic like as i say in western australia the symphony was like a tiny pocket for a very niche group of people when i first got here it was not for everyone so you know i couldn't even persuade people with that with you know bradvers to to come to the concert 
which is why I went, okay, I'm going to come and meet you. I'm going to come and play music you know and love with an orchestra and then we'll pull you on a journey. So um, people are now braver, definitely now braver. So I think, you know, as a starting point, it's about stretching certain elements and seeing how that's received, but also not trying to do that to your existing audience because your existing audience love what you do. It's about picking a pocket of people you'd like to attract mm. and knowing what your marketing strategy is to reach that pocket and giving that pocket what they want to need. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and Amanda Lester has a related question. She says, do you do any listening to customers to understand what these new audiences are interested in or did you just experiment and sort of figure out what worked? Um, yeah, the, the latter, because I have no budget ever for market research, but that doesn't mean I, I didn't speak to a lot of people and take a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. So that, that was how I knew when I had to dig down and say, is classical the music the problem? Is the orchestra the problem? Or is your perception of the experience you're going to receive by going to a concert the problem? And it was always the latter. You know, I think universally, and my gosh, I mean, since 2011, and film music has always appealed, but video game music is now massive, and particularly in the younger generation. So what we've got to kind of do is to get them to come out and hear us live, which we know is the most extraordinary experience, is somehow, you know, relate to that whole new audience of saying, how can we replicate that experience that you get from hearing that music on your computer screen into a live environment? So... Mm. Um, it definitely is just, I think we need to just be brave and experiment and not be scared, but make sure that the experience every time is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And uh, one last quick question, then we'll sign off. So Jack Rubin is asking, how are you tracking audience engagement over time? And what is the level of philanthropy that you're seeing? Philanthropy has definitely gone up because people are realizing that we're making a massive difference in Western Australia. So we've just announced a new principal partner that gave $350,000 a year for the next three years, which is, and that's a philanthropic partner, which is extraordinary. Um, so we definitely see um, so many philanthropists want to know that, you know, particularly where in Western Australia, where the Perth is the most remote city in the world. Um, you know, so we're a state pretty much the, almost the size of half of Europe with a population of 2.5 million. So we have a lot of country towns and regional places. So philanthropists want to know we can reach them, which we do. We're happy to go play in a shearing shed in a, a northwestern part of Australia if you'll take us there. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, we've definitely seen philanthropy changing. We survey whenever we can. It has been a challenge because um, our business model is quite an interesting one that I actually sell the orchestra to local shires who basically I persuade that we are the most brilliant tool for bringing an entire community together mm. and look I know this you know this um, might be controversial for some people but I'm a, an elite athlete and I've been in sport my whole life I'm on the river at 4 45 tomorrow morning so I still very competitive at a very high level in rowing so I feel I can talk about sport because I love it but um, someone always goes home losing from a sport game. So even though a lot of more regional Western Australia love sport, it can be divisive in a community if you've got two footy teams and mm. they're always whatever. I said, no, music will bring your whole community together. So they hire me. They give me a free reign. They're like, you're the expert. You tell us what you think you should perform to this community. So I get a free reign to produce and bring classical music to the regions. It's fully paid for, so I'm de-risked. Wow. Um, so, um, but what happens is obviously we don't have the emails of that person 
in a remote country town to survey afterwards. So we've come up with some mechanisms to do that, but um, we simply go on numbers, numbers that are attending, the demand for the orchestra. I used to have to ring everyone and beg them to consider having us. Now the phone just rings and we have to juggle the fact that we've only got you know, so many Saturdays in the year that we can perform for communities on a weekend. So it's it's really turned around. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, we should wrap up. Borby, this has been such a fantastic conversation. And it's really clear to me that your background as a classically trained violist, member of a rock string quartet, and then an MBA graduate, it was really the, the perfect preparation for you to be this champion for innovation in, in orchestral music. And I just want to congratulate you for really leading the way for 21st century arts leaders and, and for opening up the world of orchestral music to these communities in, in Western Australia. I think it's just wonderful. So thank you. No, thank you very um, much. And, you know, it's, it's different for us all. We're all in different places and we all have different experiences and we all have different communities. So, you know, I've done what's right for here. Um, and I know that it's working because the company's grown exponentially. But, you know, I would just encourage people to really listen and really be brave and really see what works in their community, um, but not be not be scared. But um, I will just say taking the musicians on the journey is critical. And initially I did get pushback. They want to play in a nice air-conditioned reverberant concert hall. They don't want to play on a dusty stage. But now that's changed and they realize how many lives they're changing and we've really kind of empowered them to take ownership of that. So, um, you know, definitely keep keep that community, work with the musicians, you know, that it makes such that. a big difference. Love that. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today and also for those who are watching the replay as well. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can follow Borby on LinkedIn. And I highly encourage you to explore the Perth Symphony Orchestra website, their social media, because there are so many incredible photos and videos on there that give you a sense of what they do. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your week. If you want more actionable ideas for growing your audiences by centering the customer, subscribe to the blog at cultureforhire.com. Be sure to click follow so you don't miss the next podcast episode and help others find their way to this podcast by leaving a rating or a review.